to work hard, spread names to you. I'll tell of how the good old union is coming here to dwell. Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Welcome everyone, I'm Sam Browse and I'd like to welcome you to this Arise Festival event discussing what can Gramsci teach us about the crisis today and what can we do about it. Today's forum is hosted by Labour Outlook which is a fast-growing website bringing you daily news and views from across the left and those at the forefront of resisting the Tories and it's part of the Socialist Ideas series of discussions, more um, information about which can be found in the chat during the event. Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it, and we can't hope to transform the world without understanding it. So I'm really looking forward to this series of Friday discussions on Pankhurst, Marx and Engels, uh, the Paris Commune, and today, the great Italian socialist Antonio Gramsci. To discuss Gramsci today, we're joined by James Schneider, author of Our Block, How We Win, and a former advisor to Jeremy Corbyn. And we'll be looking at how the Italian socialist Antonio Gramsci's concept of hegemony and organic crisis can help us understand what's going on today and vitally what we can do about it. Um, That relationship between ideas uh, and action, I think, is really, really important. And I think we should remember in in this discussion that Gramsci informed the strategy and tactics of political parties and social movements across Europe uh, and Latin America, too, uh, just for some examples. And it's been a rich seam of ideas for a host of strategists of social progress um, and resisting capitalism. Notably, uh, our guest today was one of those people. Um, so we want to have as many uh, questions and comments from the audience as possible in the chat. And please also let us know where you're tuning in from. We'll have time for a few rounds of questions from the audience after the speaker. And during the event, you can also tweet at Labour Outlook, which is at Labour Outlook, all one word, and Arise Festival, which is at Arise underscore festival. If you can, please donate uh, at the link provided. And if you haven't done so already, make sure that you buy a ticket for the whole of Arise, a festival of left ideas. Um, we need to sell hundreds of tickets to cover the costs of this amazing month we've got coming up. I now just want to turn to our speaker, James Schneider, to kick off this discussion. James, over to you. Thanks, Sam, and thanks everybody for uh, for coming along and sharing this lunchtime together. Um, so, the hard right is obsessed with Antonio Gramsci. I know that sounds pretty strange, and it it is a bit strange, but it is also true. Uh, just last week, Alistair Heath wrote in the Telegraph an opinion piece under the headline: "The woke blob is about to achieve its greatest triumph." its final takeover of Britain. Now, this might seem pretty laughable to us. We are very clearly not in charge. The the left runs precious few institutions. So perhaps these are just the isolated ravings of of a lone weirdo. But now, Alistair Heath isn't nobody. He's the editor of the Sunday Telegraph and the former editor of City AM. He is an organic intellectual of the ruling class. Organic intellectual is our first Gramscian term of the session, which we might come back to in the Q&A. It's not that important for the rest of what we're saying, but he is that. And, you know, he's not alone. We recently had uh, the National Conservatism Conference in London, a hard right fandango that's been imported from the US. And that was littered 
with references to Gramsci. That's in part what they're going on about when they, you know, when they wang on about cultural Marxism and critical race theory. This is part of their sort of, you know, paranoid conspiracy approach. And that includes Gramsci. So Heath's particular uh, paranoid piece concludes with this quote, this sentence. In a world where the followers of Gramsci have seized control of virtually all institutions, winning elections or referenda isn't enough. The blob must be defeated. Now, I start with this article not just to ridicule one individual ruling class intellectual, because, of course, it's absurd. Followers of Gramsci haven't seized control of any institution, barely any institution. Um, uh, but, you know, for three good reasons. Right. First, if our enemies are using or they think they are using one of our thinkers to understand the world, we should probably know what they're going on about. Secondly, they are actually doing more to popularise an idea of Gramsci, this kind of meme version of Gramsci, and their version of Gramsci isn't based on anything he actually wrote, and it's basically rubbish, um, and mainly based on one misattributed quote, which we'll come to. So, you know, we should, I want to expose that a bit. But also thirdly, I think that their use of Gramsci tells us something interesting about the crisis we're in today, and that Gramsci, the real one, not the sort of weird hard right meme version, can help us understand that. Uh, and from that point of understanding, you know, as you know, Marx said, philosophers have only interpreted the world the point is to change it. From the point of understanding what is going on, we can then begin to construct a plan for how we can change the world. And here, I think. Gramsci, the real Gramsci, the revolutionary theorist Gramsci, is helpful. So who is this guy? Who is um, Antonio Gramsci? I'll give you a very potted uh, history. Right? He's, he was an Italian communist, a Marxist political theorist, born in 1891 in Sardinia. Sardinia is that island between Italy and, and Spain. And he was an outsider. He had terrible health. He had a malformed spine, maybe from pop disease. He had a hunchback. And his childhood was basically sort of ruined by his health. And um, he had some sort of uh, trauma in his childhood as well, some sort of family troubles. His dad was a kind of low-level functionary who got um, done for embezzlement, and the family had pretty hard times. Um, but he was very bright. And like many Sardinians, Sardinia was, uh, you know, a, a poor, almost sort of internal colony within Italy, um, ruled but from Piedmont in the in the northwest, so he, like many Sardinians, went from the periphery to the to the core at the time of industrialization and moved to Turin, big industrial town in the northwest of Italy with huge amounts of car manufacturing. And there, in 1913, he joined the Socialist Party and got to work as a, as a journalist and a, and a thinker. And he ran, or you know, he ran with other people as part of the editorial committee, a paper called Nuovo Ordine, and he was an agitator among the Turin car workers. And this is an extremely exciting time. There were big strikes just after World War I, and it seemed like it could be a bit of a revolutionary situation. But also, this is the time of the rise of fascism in Italy. Benito Mussolini came to power in 1922. You know, he was really the forerunner. So in 1921, the Socialist Party split and the left broke away and formed the Communist Party. 
And Gramsci was a founding member. And in 1924, he became the general secretary of the Communist Party and he was elected to the Italian parliament. So this is, you know, Gramsci is a thinker, but he's a thinker applied specifically to political practice and revolutionary theory. He wants to transform Italy and transform the world. And this was very dangerous to the fascist regime in Italy. And so in 1926, Gramsci was arrested and he spent the last, the next 11 years, the last 11 years of his life in prison. And Mussolini aimed to silence Gramsci forever. The, the prosecutor at his trial said that we must stop this brain from functioning for 20 years. Uh, but actually, ironically, the 11 years in prison are what Gramsci was most remembered for because it's there that he wrote over 3,000 pages in 30 notebooks, which were written in a sort of code and smuggled out, and eventually became this, the prison notebooks, which is his most famous work, which was first of all published in, in Italian in the 1950s, and in English in the 1970s. So that's the background, that's who the guy is. Now, what is the right-wing meme version of Gramsci? Okay, and I know it sounds ridiculous, but we should engage with it. All right, it runs a little bit like this. Gramsci recognised that communist revolution wouldn't work in the West and that it wouldn't get traction among the working classes. So instead, he created this alternative strategy, which is an elite takeover of key cultural institutions, schools, the academy, the media, publishing, and so on. And through this cultural takeover, the, the, the left could sap I don't know, you know, Western, Christian, liberal, democratic civilization or, you know, something along those lines. And this is what they think Gramsci meant when he said cultural hegemony, a term that we're going to come back to. And the thing that they really talk about, they say Gramsci was interested in, quote, the long march through the institutions. You might have heard this phrase. It's not just on the right. They say this is what Gramsci said. Gramsci was interested in the long march through the institutions. Now, the problem is he never said that. Um, and that's not actually, as we'll see, what he, you know, what he was really about. So, the, but what the right think, you know, Rush Limbaugh, famous um, hard right uh, US American radio personality, said that Gramsci succeeded in defining a strategy for waging cultural warfare. Cultural warfare, that's what they think he's doing. And um, another one of these people, a guy called John Fonte, he's written that the academy, i.e. universities, have become, have fulfilled the role of the modern prince outlined by Antonio Gramsci. Now, the modern prince is an important concept, and we'll come back to it later. But now let's look at what Gramsci actually does say. Who, what, what did he write about in, this, in these uh, notebooks? Now, they're written a bit in code, right? He's in prison. Um, there's a censor. His things have to be smuggled out. They can be found. So that makes him in some ways difficult to read, but also in some ways a very inventive re uh, thinker because he has to come up with these concepts with these different seeming terms, which he can then use again and again. So once we begin to understand his code, then we can understand him and apply it. So what he's trying to do is create a Marxist political theory, which kind of no one had really done to that point. I mean, it's arguable, but no one had, had really done. But remember, he's very much a man of his moment, as, you know, of course, you know, all humans are from, from, from where, where they are. 
And his preoccupation, as you can understand from the perspective of being locked up by fascists in Italy in the 20s and 30s, is what was the rise of fascism about and how can this be, how can this be changed? Now, what he writes a lot about, what he's interested in, is how the ruling class actually rules. So he wants to move beyond just the idea that uh, it's the control of the means of production or it's just a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie or anything like that. He sees that while force, you know, the police uh, locking people up and so on, plays a significant role, consent is a significant element. And Gramsci is interested in how this consent is created and how it is challenged, as well as how force is applied, but also confronted and resisted. So let's go through a few of his terms to uh, to understand this. And then what we'll do is we'll apply those terms to understanding where we are now, and then some of those terms to apply for where we can go and what we can do. So probably his most famous term is hegemony. And hegemony is the rule through the combined effects of consent and coercion. That's hegemony. It's also the process whereby one group's interests come to stand in for the general interest. Let me give an example. So take, you know, you're listening to the radio in the morning and the news comes on and it gives you all the share prices. This is the example of hegemony, because what happens with the share prices is only of interest to people who own shares. But it's presented as if it's a general measure of general welfare. And, you know, we see this in a whole series of ways. If we take a, a, a look back, you know, take a step back, you can see hegemony all over our society. So then he's interested in how is this hegemony um, created. And he's got, he, he's very interested in the state and civil society and, and the relationship between them and how that produces hegemony. And his idea of civil society um, is things like the media, religion, education, of course, he's writing in a the civil service, of course, he's writing in a particular time. He also has this concept of the historical block, which we want to keep in our minds. So the historical block is a complex system of alliances to maintain ruling class power. So within the historical block will be elements that aren't in the ruling class. So, you know, we can look at this Historically, take Thatcherism, for example, you know, Thatcherism extended its historical block by offering, uh, you know, to some people to become micro capitalists, for example. He's got this other concept or, you know, his uh, the way he engages with common sense. He uses this term a lot. By common sense, he means popular belief that is relatively incoherent and it can cut in multiple directions. And he contrasts this with good sense which is more formalised and structured and, uh, and coherent. He's also got uh, this concept of passive revolution, the revolution from above, which is one way out of a uh, crisis, which we can maybe come to later. Then two other key ones you might have heard, which are war of position and war of manoeuvre. Gramsci uses a lot of martial language. Again, you've got to think of his context. World War I was a foundational uh, event in uh, in his life. So the war of position he describes as trench warfare. War of position means there's no 
uh, straightforward confrontation. It's the building up of forces on, on either side. It's the long slog this way and that way. Then there's the war of manoeuvre, which is a full frontal assault. So, for example, you could view it in this way. The war position might be when you're building up forces within a trade union, within uh, a, a, a company. But the war of manoeuvre would be the strike. Uh, then there's the concepts of the organic and the conjunctural. This is also very useful. So the organic is the tectonic changes in society. And by society, Gramsci is really interested in social classes and social forces. That's where that's what he's he's focused on. And so the organic is the tectonic. These are the underlying changes that are there. But the underlying doesn't necessarily lead to, to what will be the conclusion, because there's the conjunctural. So the conjunctural is the contingent political terrain. So, for example, um, the tectonics of British society were the same or very similar in, uh, let's say, November 2019 and uh, you know March 2020, but the contingent political terrain was different. And if the ruling class is effective at the conjunctural level, they can postpone organic contra contradictions, as we'll see. Then he's got this idea of the organic crisis, which is basically when there's a blockage of rule, when hegemony is, is, is challenged in some way or it's broken down in some way, and one side, either the historic block or the, you know, the counter-hegemonic block, they can't, they can't rule out. They, one can't rule the other. And the final concept we're going to do, sorry, I know this has been a lot of them, is the modern prince. So there he's, he's, he's riffing on uh, Machiavelli and his prince. And basically, the, talk about the modern prince is his way to talk about the Italian Communist Party. So he's uh, partly in code, partly to theorise it. So it's what is the role, the organising role that a political party can play within building its own uh, anti-hegemonic, counter-hegemonic block, the, the historical block from, from below. So how can these concepts illuminate where we are today? Right, let's start with a caveat. Right, they, he can't tell us everything. You know, Gramsci is not a total theorist and he's very much of his time. He's a political theorist, not, for example, an energy theorist. And you could easily argue, and I definitely would argue, that the organic crisis that we might have in Gramscian terms, as in a crisis of hegemony and of one of, and of class rule, is based on another organic in um, chemistry uh, crisis, you know, as in the crisis of uh, fossil fuel production and the energy crunch, which we're coming to because of climate breakdown. So he can't give us everything, but he can give us plenty of things. So hegemony has clearly been breaking down since 2008 in certainly in the global north, but, you know, we can expand this, but let's focus on Britain. Hegemony has been breaking down since the financial crisis. It was at that moment that uh, illusions were shattered, that, the, that our rulers basically knew what they were doing and they could be left to their own devices and life would basically get better. And since then, we have been living in an organic crisis. But this organic crisis has been covered over effectively, and then the, the cover has fallen away through conjunctural skill. 
So first of all, we had Cameron. And Cameron effectively uh, dealt with and contained the organic crisis through his austerity, which again, that, so that engages with common sense, um, uh, coupled with some, some sort of social liberalism and also aggressive anti-migrant and, and kicking down on, on um, you know, recipients of, of social security and so on and so forth. So that lasted a bit. Uh, and, but then obviously that broke and that broke with two things, you know, Corbyn and Brexit broke through that, um, you know, uh, that idea. And then it was covered over again by Johnson and Brexit rather effectively. And then, as we can see, looking around this, you know, that's broken. You know, the crisis is only intensified. Nothing that any of these conjunctural moves do deal with the underlying uh, the underlying crisis. They aren't actually expanding in a long-term form the ruling class's historical block because they can't provide uh, they can't they can't provide benefits to either a large minority or even you know at their most effective a narrow majority of the public. You know, for example, you can't get more people who don't own any property to own property without reducing asset prices, house prices, and so on, which hurts their main group of people. So that broke, but now we're into the next conjunctural skill, which actually doesn't take place purely within the Conservative Party, which is capitals A and B teams. So we have Sunak and we have Starmer and Reeves, Sunak and Hunt, Starmer and Reeves. And their capitals A and B teams. So, but we can see that this is extremely weak. Um, uh, a Gramscian or, or someone who follows Gramsci a bit, or he did, Ranajit Guha, who died recently, is the founder of subaltern studies. Um, and he studied um, colonial South Asia, especially uh, Bengal. And he, he wrote a book called Domination Without Hegemony which applies these Gramscian concepts, but to colonial South Asia. And there he's arguing that the colonial rule rested very heavily on force and coercion and domination and never really, never really achieved uh, consent and, and hegemony. And I think, of course, not as starkly and not in exactly the same way, but you can see something of an analogue process taking place now with suppression of voters, arresting people left, right and centre, the dramatic closing down of the political space, the attempt to ban certain types of strikes. You know, here we are seeing a shift from an attempt to reconstruct or patch up uh, uh, consent and the social contract towards just enforcing rule. And I think the concept of the historic block and the counter-hegemonic block, it, you know, it's like, uh, good shadow side or whatever the right metaphor is can help explain what happened to Corbyn and what has happened to the left uh, since the end of Corbyn, which is under Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party, or let's say under our, all of our collective leadership of the Labour Party, we were starting to build an alternative block, could actually begin to construct an alternative counter-hegemonic block to the ruling historic block. And that's why there was such a ferocious attack 
and a, a lot of it was in civil society. You see lots of it, it it's lots of it in the in the media and from civil society organizations and so on. The assault on uh, on on Corbyn and the left and the turning of previously the liberal end, let's say, of civil society into a battering ram against the left uh, before, you know, b- before and after. And we're seeing that now with the left being completely chased out of public, deba- you know, of course, politics, that's one thing, but public debate as well is another thing. And therefore the concomitant dramatic shrinking of the public debate and what's possible to discuss on questions of tax, public ownership. You saw it with the monarchy uh, recently, despite when you look at the polling, you know, either on tax and public ownership and minimum wage and so on and so forth. What we're talking about is the overwhelming majority position being predominantly excluded from the public debate or on things like monarchy. It's very, you know, republicanism is very much a minority pursuit, but it's, you know, minority pursuit with something like 30% of the of the country, you'd imagine that would get represented more. And I believe it would be represented more if the system weren't in an organic crisis. Now, I think that if the Queen had died in 2005, say, there would have been a- opinion pieces allowed in the Times, the so-called paper of record, which laid out a kind of establishment version of, of republicanism in order to have debate. Um, but now that's not allowed because the system is so fragile. But they do the, the, they do have the ability to change horses, which is the meaning of Starmer. It's the meaning of what's happened in the Labour Party is to give the ruling class that option. Think back to the summer of 2019. In the summer of 2019, uh, the the ruling class and, and capital actually freaked out about No Deal Brexit. The continuity remain stuff before that point had basically been a professional managerial class animated. I'm not saying all the people who wanted a second referendum were professional managerial class and rule elite establishment. I'm not saying that. But the animating forces, the governing forces over that grouping were. But in the summer of 2019, it looked like no deal Brexit was actually possible. And that's what Boris Johnson was going to do. The ruling class freaked out and looked around for alternatives and in ordinary times they would have found a way to remove the government and hand it over to Labour in some way um, because they could change horses but you can't do that if Labour is actually not part of your block. Labour is actually at the time the tip of the spear or at least the leadership of Labour was the tip of the spear of a counter-hegemonic block, a block that was seeking to challenge the, the ruling order. And that's why at the time you had all this nonsense about, um, you know, technocratic coups and government to national unity with making, you know, Ken Clark or, you know, random people the, the, the prime minister. Anyway, all of this is just to say that Keir Starmer is not advancing the class struggle from a Marxist perspective, however much Paul Mason might, might have said that. Anyway, jokes aside, what can the hard right being into Gramsci or the mean version of Gramsci, the false version of Gramsci, tell us about the crisis. So firstly, they want to shift the terrain and prevent the development of good sense, which is why they're focused on, uh, on the culture wars. Right? They, it's not a sign of strength. Right? The, the, the kind of traditional right know that they can't provide real benefits to people. 
living standards are going down very, very fast, and they're not going to be patched up under any of their plans whatsoever. They don't have a solution for the organic crisis. So move the terrain, fight somewhere else, find something other uh, ways to polarise. But also it functions, um, Corey Robin has a book called The Reactionary Mind, which is about, um, which basically argues that uh, reaction, the reaction rec- needs to be a victim. It's got a victim complex, it needs to have a gripe, which is why all this m- seemingly completely cracker stuff about the woke blob and that the left is secretly in control and all of this stuff exists because it gives them an idea that they're really the victim and they have something to fight against, which is tremendously mobilizing. And also you've got to remember, it doesn't matter if the thing you're fighting for doesn't exist and the thing you're fighting against doesn't really exist. Sometimes it's stronger to have floating signifiers or semi-floating signifiers. You know, get Brexit done wasn't really about um, changing our relations with the EU fundamentally, or at least in large part, it wasn't. It was standing in for something else. So what does applying Gramsci show what we can do now? So I just want to repeat the point I made before. Gramsci is basically about classes. So the climate energy breakdown sits as a kind of structuring thing, that's the terrain on which Gramsci's questions of organic crisis are there. So we just need to keep that in mind. But the, orga- the organic crisis will reassert itself, okay? In the, politics is basically in lockstep with itself. It isn't, you know, as in Westminster politics, it isn't, it isn't offering... Um, uh, an avenue through which a challenge within the organic crisis from below can be reached. But that will, it it, it will find a way through because uh, just almost mathematically, you can't, uh, the the, crisis will assert itself. Um, So what can we do? Firstly, and I'll I'll be quick so we can get into the Q&A. Sorry, I've taken so long. Um, is let's not take up the mantle of the fake Gramsci, right? Don't fight the hard right where they want, you know, Sun Tzu, all of that, you know, fight the, uh, you know, fight on the terrain that they're not expecting. Let's not go there, right? That's not the, that's not the right thing. That doesn't mean we accept their lunacy or their horrific reaction and all the rest of it. But when we're looking at the key terrain, that's not, that's not all. Now, what's our problem? Our problem is we are no longer building historic block. And we don't have a modern prince, which is forming as a kind of strategic nucleus to the development of our historic bloc, the counter-hegemonic bloc. Now, in, sorry for the plug, in my book, this one here, uh, our bloc, yeah, you, that's why it's called our bloc, um, how we win, I'm arguing that now in the post-Corbyn period, our strategy should focus around creating our own block. And what that means is a uniting of the progressive forces that we have in society as, as tightly as we, as we can manage. So what do we mean by progressive forces? Progressive forces, of course, mean the trade unions, means the environmental movement. It means the anti-racist movement, the feminist movement, the whole range of uh, campaigns, the tenants movement, tenants unions, ACORN, and so on, and also the left where it exists uh, in any organised form in politics, the, the Labour left, the, the, the small left that exists in Parliament and in local, in local government, 
the left that remains in the grassroots of the Labour Party and the grassroots left that's now outside of the Labour Party. And so I'm arguing that if we are able to knit more of those more of those forces together, we will be able to act in society much more effectively. This chasing of the left out of uh, public discourse can be challenged, but can only be challenged if we are forcing the agenda to our thing. So take, for example, the like the RMT strike is a great example. It's a real world event. So it gets attention. It's a real thing that uh, that happens. And Mick Lynch, therefore, gets to go on TV. And then he says great things and just look at the, uh, you know, look at the response. But this is, we've got this big strike wave. Loads of people are getting arrested, climate direct action. Loads of people were not paying their energy bills. Lots and lots of forms of resistance are taking place now. And they are going to intensify because things are getting worse. But they haven't yet been knit together into a front that can challenge political power. And that is what we are, that is what we're going to need. Now, no party is going to play the role of the modern prince now, right? Obviously, it's not the Labour Party. And we can't just create another party just like that, as I argue in the book, in our electoral system. It's not possible. We create another left unity, lots of nice, well, not very many is the problem, but nice, good people, um, the overwhelming majority uh, and and earnest and all the rest of it can't go anywhere in our our system. So we need to uh, find another way that we can unite and help coordinate and cohere without damaging the autonomy of individual struggles the tenant struggle, different industrial struggles, the climate struggle into one front, uniting the struggle for the end of the month, the struggle at the end of the month, or the struggle for the end of the world. And as we do that, we can effectively engage in our war of position now, which will strengthen us for when the war of manoeuvre does come, when the next surge comes. And it will come. In the same way, you know, everyone was completely taken by surprise by Corbyn in 2015. And it was surprising, the mechanism through which it happened. But the fact that there would be a vehicle through which uh, the revolt, the, basically the organic crisis from below could be expressed was always going to happen. And it will, it will come. So my argument, based a bit in Gramsci, is we need to unite as much as we can and coordinate our progressive forces into our own uh, into our own block, and that will give us the strategic capacity to act uh, effectively when the next surge comes. Thanks. Sorry, I went on a little bit too. Thanks, James. That was really really interesting. Um, just a reminder to people to drop any questions that you have um, uh, in the chat. Um, I think it's just to the right of the uh, of the screen on YouTube. Um, uh, before we go to questions, though, I just want to go really briefly to Logan Williams, who is an NEU activist, a Labour Outlook contributor and a RISE volunteer, who's going to tell us more about RISE Festival and what you can do to support it. Over to you, Logan. Thank you, Sam. And it's great to be here with around 100 of us live here hearing James's fascinating talk so far on Gramsci and, and trying to understand how we can apply those ideas today and it's something I've, an area I've not really struggled that much, uh, 
not struggled read that much maybe struggled is more the, the metaphor there of uh, trying to read it at times with that not understanding the code as James said but it is fascinating and it this is only the second event we've got on our live events all the way through this month we've got some more fascinating events coming up from and especially in our socialist ideas sessions on a Friday lunchtime from Sylvia Pankhurst Scourge of the Empire which sounds fascinating Marx and the Crisis with Michael Roberts, fascinating economist who's really great at breaking down these Marxist economic ideals and the Paris Commune with an excellent Labour historian from Australia. But we can't do all of these events without your guys' support. We are <clears throat> volunteers. We are running this, you know, to try and populate these ideas, maybe build the block as James was on about and try and grow these ideas. So we need you guys to support. And the key way you can do that in, at this time is buying tickets for our event, which I'm sure is coming up in our links on our chat, not on Zoom this time, on YouTube. And it, it just keep as much, if you if you can, please buy those tickets or please donate. It really does help us out to try and build these events, to try and build these socialist ideals in the 21st century. Just a quick short plug for the, our next big event is on Monday evening and it is I on the topic of Irish unity with John McDonnell and Michelle Michelle Gildan UMP from Sinn Féin and Jeff Bell from Labour for Irish unity and it promises to be a really fascinating thought I can't wait to get into the Q&A so I'm not going to hold you much longer but please remember buy your tickets for Arise Festival 2023 thank you cheers Logan thanks for that good advice definitely buy your tickets uh, and there'll be links posted in the chat um yeah, uh, just to note, actually, as Logan said, we've got uh, over 100 people with us um, watching today from North London, sunny South London, as you can see from my window, uh, Manchester, Lewisham, Doncaster, Leeds, Winchester, Derbyshire, Stratford-upon-Avon, Scotland, Sc uh, Surrey, Ireland and Sussex. So from across the country and beyond. Um I think uh, to get us started, um, and while some questions come in, and those are collated for me, and uh, just to abuse the chair myself, um, I, I wondered, James, you talked a bit of, at the end of, about um, kind of knitting together uh, different social movements and uh, to create that kind of block. Um, so my question was really, what does that look like in practice? Obviously, like one of the things that I thought was really interesting after, interesting and a bit tragic, <laughs> after um like uh corbyn had lost the leadership of the labor party in the 2019 general election there seemed to be a fragmentation of forces on the left but then lots of people kind of coming forwards in lots of different initiatives going oh we're, we're going to be the thing that unites everyone and you saw this sort of proliferation of organizations so i guess my question was like how do we how, what does and I think you're right to look beyond the Labour Party and actually look to the wider society for the forces that we need to knit together. What does that knitting together look like, kind of organisationally and in terms of the sort of structures that we might argue for? Or, 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 or should we be thinking that mechanistically about it? Is it something that's more informal? So I think it will, it will certainly start much more informally. And, um, uh, and I think that's probably right for the for the form you know in in uh you know when when Gramsci's thinking about it writing in a totally different time there's a party party has a structure we know about blah 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 and then it's got its 
forces and organizations that are in society and uh, those collectively make up it you know make up his block now we can't think like that because that's not what that's not what we have so i think there are lots of um uh, so informally i think that would look like as many of those forces as we discussed coordinate actively coordinating with each other as a start uh, standing in solidarity with each other in their struggles and then beginning to combine them which i think is when it starts to get particularly interesting because different people have different tactics and uh that they're prepared to you know they're prepared to engage in and you can you know you can imagine a for example a, a, a something on water taking place now which involves the trade unions that are in water community organizations in areas that are having you know their rivers and seas full of shit um that have um uh, a parliamentary or political campaign for public ownership that could have a direct action campaign focused on uh, on shareholders and the and the company and so on and so forth you could begin uh, to bring in different it could, if if it's focusing in uh, on coastal areas in part because of the pumping into the sea well then you've also got the the the, the question of um of, of asylum and uh, and, and where people where people are shunted you can begin to create these uh these campaigns which where the different elements are make us more than the sum of of our parts and going back to the thing where i said you know Gramsci can't really help us with which i think is the actually super deep crisis in our society which isn't just a crisis of uh, of elite rule reproducing itself but the very regime of fossil capitalism which is uh struggling to reproduce itself and that's what lies underneath in my analysis anyway the 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 ruling class's struggle to um to to reproduce its rule uh we need to be able to unite the cost of living climate crisis because they are the same crisis they that they they have the same fundamental root and our solution to all of these things is going to be popular power now our solution to all of these things is to remove the uh the ruling class from its position and to create democratic mechanisms so that people can actually uh, can actually be in charge so there is i don't have a like a template for this organization will look like this right and i uh, uh, um because i don't think that's possible also you know since working on the book and so on you know i've been doing organizing efforts myself in trying to bring together some of these different forces and it's changed and it's and actually it's different people than the ones that i thought initially would be it would be easy so like you know i've just come out of the uh, the corbin team and so on and so forth obviously i'm close with lots of people on the labor left and mp's and so on. i thought right well that bit is going to be easy i'll get that bit together and then you know we'll have to do the work to 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 bring in the other bits i mean actually i've found that it's the the climate movement that is the most um uh on with this this sort of uh this sort of approach i found so far but there are lots of signs of different things um uh different things coming together so 
But I want to say one other thing quickly, because that I haven't given anything that anyone can do who's watching, right? Because these alliances, this this mechanism of building a strong block, this is not just how can national organisations have better coordination and forward planning and, and, and help each other. This happens, has to happen in every community, in every place that the people that are in the trade union, that are in the XR group, that are in the tenants union and so on, that they have, first of all, they just know who each other are, that they, when they're doing things, they can stand together, that they can begin to knit together these campaigns into a, into a front. And that is something that every single person watching now can do. And that is what it's going to take to build the block. Building block is not going to be a mechanistic process where we say, fantastic, these 12 organizations have signed up and their logos are on a website and therefore we have a history, you know, that's not, that's not going to be it. We're talking about what are the, actually the mechanisms that we can build popular power, make our campaigns more effective, but, uh, and be able to all, mobilize more people, but also strengthen the organizing, strengthen the organizing within each struggle, but also as one line, one frontier, one line of, of assault, which is what we're trying to build together of you know, the overwhelming majority of people who are screwed by the current system against the people that rule it and then, the, you know, their lackeys and then the few people that, that they're allowed to benefit. Yeah, so I guess, I guess it's sort of like thinking, rather than thinking kind of organisationally, which I think people kind of tend to do, I guess it's like thinking politically, right? It's about actually yes. like, what's the, yes. what's the intervention that galvanises that block rather than, yeah. Super interesting. We've, we've had some questions um, sort of, flooding in which is great firstly there's uh one from daniel r herbert um which i think is a really like i think it's a really useful question to ask which is if i understand correctly um part of what concerns Granchi about a hegemonic order is what makes it very difficult to imagine or or articulate an alternative is that right uh you mentioned the client we've had a few come through so i think if we do them in kind of bunches of three and then we'll go in for a second round in a bit uh, the second one, well, you mentioned the climate crisis, so it's good to bring this in, I think. Um, someone says, what do you think can be learned from the way the climate movement has seemed to mobilise significant numbers on quite a radical analysis in a relatively short period? Um, and you also kind of touched this when you kind of uh, touched on this in your in your kind of opening remarks when you were talking about um, not kind of wanting to kind of mirror the right on the kind of cold war issue. Um uh, the question is, the war on woke is increasingly seen as an attempt from the ruling class to create distraction from the systemic crisis they've overseen. Should we be tackling it head on or focus on the crisis? Is there a way we can do both? So one sort of uh, clarification from Daniel, a question on the climate crisis and what we can learn from climate campaigners and another on the sort of war from woke, war on woke and how you respond to that. Great. Um, so on the first one, hegemony. Yeah, I mean. Hegemony, when it's really effective, you could, can't even see it. Um, so, you know, like the thing I said about the, you know, share prices, you know, I, I imagine if you were listening to the, the, the Today programme in 2001 or whatever, and the share price come, you know, maybe I picked a bad year, actually, 2003, right, and the share price, you know, share price comes on. You know, people think, oh, well, you know, I, I don't know why that's important, but I know it is important, right? And, and I do think that is, yeah, that is how um, hegemony is hard to think through. But what makes it visible initially, a bit visible, is its fractures, 
the the cracks in the fresco of ruling class power, which we see right now, we're seeing on its own terms, it's struggling to reproduce itself. So we can see uh, hegemony uh, and domination in action. But the thing that makes it really visible is having counter hegemony, as in having a force that's trying to trying to do it, that is provoked, and it does that in two ways. One, counter hegemony calls out hegemony, but secondly, it gives people actual hope that things can be different. There is clearly a, there's clearly a struggle afoot, so it's worth being part of, which makes things visible. Then, what can be learned from the from the climate movement? Um, loads. I'm going to say that the, the, the number one thing is how fast they have evolved since like October 2018 to now in their analysis, how, how quickly that's changed. They've like tried things, they've had success, they shift strategy, it has some success, they shift, et cetera, et cetera. It is, it is iterating and it, it is moving. Now, of course, it mobilizes huge numbers of people. And part of that is they've got really, really good mobilization design. Right? Really, really good. It's not just the issue, right? The, like if you go to a Just Up Oil meeting, right, the way they are run is extremely good at mobilizing people. Because they start, there's a little intro. People then break up into tiny groups, like four or five people. So you have a personal connection with someone around you. And everyone just says why they're there. What's their motivation? Very, very human. Then you go back for, 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 for some speakers. They have then clear pathways to action, action points that people are going to take. And then they break back into the small groups with a facilitator who basically goes around and says, which of these ones are you going to do? And that has, like, it's just on a, on, a, on a kind of mechanistic basis, is way better at getting people to, to sign up than, um, you know, to do things than a lot, you know, a lot of the other um, types, of, types of media. So I think they have a real focus on mobilisation. Um, and that has helped such, mo- such massive mobilising. But we have to remember that, you know, there are, we've, we've got three elements here. There's... Uh, unite there's mobilize and there's organize right you can't if you just do one of those things or just two of those things it isn't enough right we can unite people as in we can put some you know logos on a website but that doesn't make it better for us to organize you know easier for us to organize or easier for us to mobilize people we can mobilize tons of people but we're not building any power because we're not we're not organizing and so on and so forth. So I think we can learn a lot in how they, that they, uh, they've mobilized um, and how they've been, you know, how, how they're thinking too. I mean, the climate people, at least people that I talk to are, are really heavily on the cost of living climate, sorry, cost of living crisis and the climate crisis is the same, is the same thing we're talking about. And even going as far as saying we shouldn't be talking about the, 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 the crisis isn't the climate. Right? The, 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 the crisis is one of power. Like we don't have any power to do anything, so they're killing us, right? And the way in which they're killing us is different for different types of people, of course, right? And, 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 it, and it's variegated, but, you know, the, the main way, if we take a, 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 a not even that long-term view, you know, a fit, on a 50-year horizon, the main way that people are, um, you know, the, the, the ruling class is going to 
hurt most people is through climate breakdown. Uh, and it's doing, and, and the question of there is not, well, people need to understand the science of climate breakdown more. It's people have to have more power so that we can do something about it. Um, sorry, and then the last question was the, the tackle the tackle the culture wars head on. So um, I, I think that if that's where your opponent wants to fight, that's not where you should be fighting. But that doesn't mean that you just capitulate to their attack. You have to have an alternative line of attack. Uh, I, I, for, for example, um, like take, take the, the, the basic metaphor that most people have in their mind about the economy, which is uh, a, a glass, a container, a container with fluid in. But there's a hole somewhere in it. And it's being sucked out. And the thing is, that's basically true. Right? That is basically what it, it is happening. And what the, the right do very effectively is they take this basic metaphor that people have in their heads, which is pretty much true, and they say it's this group of people that are doing it. Now, yes, we should say, no, it's not that group of people. But even more importantly, we should say it's this group of people. We need to have our alternative narrative in our terrain that we are fighting so it's not just so if you know we need to fight on the terrain that we're strong that's where we should be building our campaign our active front-footed campaigns that's where we should be trying to do that while defensively heading off the uh these attacks on, on their own on, you know on their own terms because they are attacking people and it is disgusting and secondly, because through doing this, they're taking people's common sense understanding of the world, which have a relationship to reality, and then turning it in a particular direction. It's very interesting listening to hard right. And the hard right is going to be the, um, is the emerging force on the right, basically everywhere in the world. This is what we are going to be, you know, in two years' time, Keir Starmer will be prime minister. We will be fighting a... Uh, an, an establishment um, government that isn't doing the reforms that people need and a hard right that is attacking it and is will generally be using sort of sort of like folk left understanding of things but then twisting it in a in a horrible direction so we need to have we need to have both elements it's really interesting. Um, I was, uh, again, to abuse the chair a bit, I was thinking while you were talking and that, that, that the difference between kind of war of position and war of manoeuvre as well. And this whole idea of, I think you're right to say that the that's kind of cultural thing actually is a misnomer because actually it's not really about like culture and ideas. It is actually about a, a, effectively attacking one section of our block, right? That's if you're going to put it in the kind of Gramscian sense. Yeah. So I guess there's a job to do in the meantime in terms of that culture, sorry, that war of position in terms of actually building up the arguments against those things too in our in our own side as well, which is kind of interesting. Um, yeah, uh, another question. Uh, this is about the kind of history of Gramsci. Um, and like, I think there's, yeah, like historically sort of Gramsci's been uh if i can be a bit cheeky as a former academic uh <laughs> has been kind of used in academic circles and often actually you know to, uh, there are quite rightist conclusions that people kind of draw from gramsci um 
uh, and like, and again, they're kind of often associated in a right turn in some kind of political movements as well. Um, and this kind of reflects this question reflects that. It's what? Why do you think Gramsci was so misused to justify some left parties abandoning an anti-capitalist course in the 1970s and 1980s? Um, and there's another question uh, about um, kind of war of position and war of manoeuvre. Um, to what extent would you state at this moment of time that the British Labour movement is fighting a war of manoeuvre? And should we, as a left, be placing our efforts to support this war? Or should we be attempting to wage a war position to maintain strongholds built during the Corbyn years? Um, yeah, uh, those, let's, let's go with those two. Partly, Gramsci's easy to misinterpret, in part because of the it being it being written in code thing I said, in part because most people don't actually read this because it is um, it is written in code. But like, he also gets some things very wrong. It's not like he's just this, uh, like, for example, and it's just a stray thought and it's totally forgivable. He's writing in a prison cell effectively to himself a stray thought in a notebook, but he, he, he writes his bit about like, Maybe Liberia will will be to Africa as Piedmont was to Italy, and Liberia will be the is the most advanced bit of Africa, like Piedmont was the most advanced bit of, of Italy, and it will be the force for unification, right? Like he gets some stuff wrong, um, but also I think you know it, it's the ideas that were lying around, and I think in the fact that he was published in the seventies, it's this new thinker that can be found, probably made it easier for people to use that as the turn, you know, the, 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 the turn away. Also, I think, like, the soft left are, are slippery, right? I mean, apologies to anyone who's, who, who's on the soft left, but the soft left are slippery. And they, they can, I mean, we can see this with, with Starmer, who presented as being soft left, right? They can speak some of your, uh, your language before turning back rapidly to the, rapidly to the right. And I mean, definitely within within Britain and, and how Gramsci was deployed, you know, you've got, um, uh, you know, you've got like Stuart Hall, so, you know, Gramsci and leftist. Then you've got like soft left people like in the 90s, say, you know, like Neil Lawson, who was like, OK, I like Gramsci. I don't like Stalinism. Gramsci's like not Stalinism because it's more nuanced and so on. And New Labour is going to win and there are some progressive elements, et cetera, et cetera. And they were told there are progressive elements and then there aren't. Right. And so, uh, I, you know, I think that's part of that's a pro, pro, quite an insufficient answer. I'd have to think, you know, more. But it's a very good question. Then on what we should be doing. OK, so it's it, it's not just you can't. It's not just like there's one thing to do. Um, and the whole the whole British Labour movement isn't in a war of position. Sorry, isn't in a war of manoeuvre yet. Some unions are right now, obviously, because they are in they're in struggle. This has not become generalised. You know, for example, if on the first of February, when there were four or five trade unions out on strike, eight hundred thousand people, I think, out on strike. You know, if those four or five general secretaries had held a seven a.m. press conference or something, and they said, you know, this is the united. Thing for all workers not just in our individual struggles and our demands are not just you know we are also demanding a 15 pound minimum wage and blah blah you know things for all workers we shouldn't so things that they they all already say right that each trade union and each trade union leader already says those things in their own 
way, but it, as analysis rather than as politics, right? That's their analysis of what should happen rather than creating a political, front, a political frontier. And then you would be entering potentially into a more generalised labour movement, but also unorganised workers, but being led by the labour movement, uh, uh, war, uh, war manoeuvre. In terms of war position on on on, uh, on the the um, Corbyn advances, I mean, some people will do that. Most people won't, right? Because it's 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 grueling, it's miserable, um, and uh, and there's other exciting stuff going on. You know, that's also part of this point about the um, you know what I'm I'm saying about about our block is it's not everyone should just rush in and do this one thing. It's it it's not that. It's that the things that people can do should touch base with the things that other people can do. You know, people are located differently from one another in the economy, in the country, in society, in their interests, in their, you know, what they can do. You know, some people can get arrested. Other people can't get arrested. Some people work in an important sector, so they can organise an important sector. Other people don't, so they can't, right? So it's it's bringing together those different things so that they can be more than some of their parts, rather than saying, this type of political activity is trash, and this type is what we really everyone should be doing. What an excellent way to an excellent concluding point! Like not sort of non-sectarian. We need to bring everyone together and find those find those common connections. Um, just to say, to uh, shout out to Jules. Totally agree in the chat. It's been a fantastic um, a fantastic discussion. Really, really useful. And thank you. Um, James so much for speaking thank you very much for having me and thanks for organizing this um it's absolutely thankless task although you're getting thanks now but it's uh, <laughs> it's it's really amazing what you uh, what you what you guys do and so but, thanks so much thank thanks you so much watching, couple before before we go just a reminder to um make sure you buy your tickets for the whole of Arise uh, a festival of left ideas uh we need to sell hundreds of tickets to cover the cost of the month that we've got coming up which is going to be amazing um we hope you've enjoyed today i definitely have it's been a really really stimulating discussion i think our next discussion in this uh friday socialist ideas session um, at rise is on sylvia pankhurst uh suffragette socialist and scourge of empire at 1 p.m on friday june 9th and our socialist sundays also kick off this week with the all grieve truth and justice campaign that's more of me chairing uh, and we're be, we're delighted to be hosting a major discussion, uh, which you do, should all really get to on Ireland next Monday at 6.30pm. So please buy a ticket, register for as many events as you can throughout the festival. And thank you so much again, James, for joining us today. And have a lovely Friday, everyone. <laughs>